Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian O'Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guests are Anya Bernstein, Professor of Law at SUNY Buffalo School of Law, and Glenn Stashevsky, Professor of Law at Michigan State University College of Law. We will discuss their article, Judicial Populism, which will be published in the Minnesota Law Review. So, Anya, Greg, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. Pleasure. Yeah, so this is a really interesting and I think timely paper. But by way of introducing listeners to your thesis, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you mean by populism and why you think it's a problem. So populism comes in a lot of flavors. There's a a lot of different versions that we see. And our point in this paper is definitely not to make the final statement about what populism really is or is not. Um, Our point rather is to draw on some of the political science literature that's identified a particular form of populism, what we call contemporary authoritarian populism. So not the 19th century American version, but more like what we're seeing in Eastern Europe, Um, and also rising in the United States in in the last few years. And we really focused in on three key traits that people seem to agree characterize that this contemporary authoritarian version of populism. First of all is anti-pluralism. So populism presents people as a unified mass with a single will, So not just people, but the people, you know, Um, and it imagines a a leader who embodies that will in a totally unique and complete and singular way. Second uh, characteristic is that it is anti-institutionalist, and this obviously really relates to anti-pluralism. So it denigrates the key institutions that we see as mediating differences in democracies like uh, legislatures and also sometimes administrative agencies. Um, It wants to bypass those institutions to allow the leader to have a direct connection, like a direct line of communication with the people. And finally, uh, populism or populist rhetoric presents the world in what we call a Manichaean way. So in other words, as divided between uh, a good side and an evil side. So the key things being there being that uh, there's only two sides and one of them is good and one of them is evil. So again, this really ties in with the anti-pluralist idea. It's not like you can have lots of um, different positions that are all legitimate, but differing. No, there's a good and there's a bad. Um, And in particular, uh, populist discourse tends to pit a morally pure people against an unresponsive and corrupt elite. And sometimes that elite might be an economic elite. Sometimes it might be a political elite. We think that in the United States in particular, it's often an intellectual elite. So pointy-headed experts are the problem. Um, So we basically draw on those three or we identify those three traits and then trace them out 
in um, judicial discourse. Yeah, and one way, if I could just uh, sort of chime in, I mean, I, I, if you want to encapsulate these traits in a in a very simple way, um, I feel like the anti-pluralism is the idea that there's just one way, and anti-institutionalism is what I say, meaning the populist leader gets to say what the one true way is. And the Manichaeanism uh, expresses itself in the idea that everyone who disagrees is the enemy of the people, right? So there's one way, it's, it's what I say, and everyone who disagrees with me is the enemy. And so this is really a way of uh, a form of rhetoric that is a way of exercising power. Um, and it exercises power in a way that sort of disarms criticism or opposition, Right, because anyone who doesn't agree with the populist leader just doesn't count. They're an enemy of the people. So one thing I thought might be helpful is if you could explain the difference between what you're describing as populism in the modern sense and majoritarian democracy. So, well, so I guess my immediate thought in response to that is um, the um, fact that the populist leader is someone who uh, claims to embody the will of the people. Um, and so it's sort of uh, uh, a non-empirical um, way of assessing the will of the people, right? I think of majoritarianism as, um, you know, people cast votes or express their views and 51% get what they want. Um, but populist leaders aren't actually purporting to uh, uh, identify the will of the people in any sort of empirical way. They're just sort of uh, announcing what the will of the people is. And that's sort of the, the one way what I say thing. Um, and, and so I would think of majoritarianism as if, if we really want to implement um, majority, majoritarian preferences, we would have to figure out what those preferences are and how to implement them. But um, the populist leader is instead just declaring what it is the people uh, want. Um, and as I was saying, if you don't agree, then you don't count anyway. So there's no way really to, to, to criticize or even assess the accuracy of what they're saying. I guess it also gets back to... Um, the thing I mentioned earlier about the direct line of communication, that the, the image that populists draw is of the leader who's really just almost on an emotional level in touch with the true will of the people, the real people, you know, the people who count. Um, and I think that kind of non-empirical uh, aspect of it is really, really clear just in that way of phrasing it, right? Because in any group, but especially in a large democracy, there is no one will of the people. Um, and even if you're trying to implement a majoritarian sense, you still recognize that the majority doesn't represent the whole. But the claims of populism go beyond any kind of um, verifiable, you know, attributable views to a particular segment of the population. It's much more of a kind of aspirational ideological statement that 
I really, I, they don't necessarily even know what they want, but I know what they really want. There's a kind of paternalism to it as well. The, the other thing I would add about this is just that um, in sort of a classic pluralist system, you have shifting majorities, right? So some people get what they want sometimes and not other times, and everyone wins once in a while and everyone loses sometimes. But in a populist system, there aren't shifting majorities. It's just what the leader says um, is the will of the people. And that can potentially set up a really destructive dynamic where it's the people who count, who always get what they want, and the leader is always doing um, things on their behalf. But it really excludes um, minorities and um, other disenfranchised um, groups or people. The, the others who don't count are completely shut out. They lose all the time. Um, and, and that is, I think, in a lot of ways, um, part of why I think populism is so undemocratic, right, is because it's, um, it's exclusionary in nature, even though it speaks in this sort of universalizing way. Um, you know, so I represent all the people except the ones I don't like or the ones who don't like me. They're the enemies. They don't count. So your paper is about judicial populism. How do you think the form of populism you're describing manifests itself in judging? We looked around. I mean, the paper grows out of an intuition that we had that there was something similar going on in some of the populist rhetoric that we've been seeing, you know, over the past decade or so. Um, and in some of the opinions that Gwen and I both write a lot about, because we both uh, write a lot about statutory interpretation and, and legal interpretation more generally. Um, and once we'd identified these three traits as kind of traits that people seem to agree characterize authoritarian populism, um, their presence in judicial opinions really started jumping out at us in a, in a new way. Um, and we ended up uh, coalescing around a few different places where we thought that these traits really manifest themselves in a really articulated way. But maybe before I, I get to those, I just want to note that one of the things that really struck us in, in reading opinions, you know, from this perspective, from the perspective of an interest in populism, is that this really is a rhetoric that's available to all. Anybody can dip into this kind of pool of rhetorical strategies and stock stories and tropes in order to um, basically bolster their legitimacy and try to delegitimize people who disagree with them. That's kind of the, the use to which this stuff is put. Um, so we're not saying it only appears in these particular places. Rather, it, it seems to be, you know, kind of a, a pernicious trend that's growing in all kinds of uh, judicial opinions and, and also in, in legal theory more generally. Um, but the key kind of, uh, more articulated areas where we that we discuss in the paper are theories of textualism, of originalism, um, and also the unitary executive theory. Um, yeah, and uh, the, the way the paper is, is structured, I think, 
kind of gets at your question in sort of two different ways. We, we have a section of the paper that talks about um, seeing populist traits in legal writing. And um, the goal of that part of the paper is to show how the um, three key traits of political populism are also reflected in legal writing. Um, so we give examples of judges using Manichaean imagery um, in, in their legal writing. Um, so, for example, um, Justice Scalia's opinion in Lawrence versus Texas, where he criticizes the majority, um, you know, for being these out of touch elite activists who are, um, you know, who have bought into the, the gay rights agenda that isn't reflected, um, you know, in broader public opinion or, or things like that. Um, we talk about how judges um, uh, who write in this vein sort of deny pluralism and act like there's one single correct answer in the law that only only they can sort of ascertain through through the methods that they use. Um, how they avoid institutional mediation by um, uh, reflecting uh, little, having little interest in the way democratic institutions actually function. Like we're not going to look at legislative history or what Congress um, was trying to do when they passed this statute. We're just going to look at the words of the, of the text um, and really sort of justifying their decision-making um, based on the methods that they're using um, without justifying their decisions on the merits based on in, in sort of a consequential way. And, and I think those are sort of the, the traits that um, Anya pointed out are available to everyone and different kinds of judges use them. Like we give examples of Justice Kagan using this language um, in some opinions, um, along with Justice Scalia, right? It's not just the conservatives um, who do this. Um, but at the same time, this judicial populism is really manifested or deeply ingrained in um, the interpretive theories that we discuss. Um, and so we have a, another section of the paper that talks about standard manifestations of judicial populism, and that's focused specifically on how these traits are reflected in textualism, originalism, and, and then I think most obviously probably in unitary executive theory, right? The president is, the uh, by virtue of being elected, um, the leader of the executive branch who should be able to do um, what he wants without having the deep state and the and others sort of resisting that. So my impression is that oftentimes the sort of interpretive methods you describe or you 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 focus on in the paper, like textualism, originalism, and maybe even the you know unitary executive theory, are seen as kind of constraining factors on judges, it seems like you don't think that that's the right way to look at it. C can you talk a little bit about why you think that's the wrong way to understand how those actually work in practice? Sure. Yeah. So we, we talk in the paper about how they, they, these methods do kind of paint themselves to be, as you say, constraining or minimalist. That's kind of the language that, that we use for that kind of constraint, where the idea is that the judge or legal theorist is encouraged to kind of have as small an effect as possible. You know, we, we use a, a 
like a hiking metaphor sometimes, you know, pack in, pack out, leave it untouched. Um, And just from a conceptual perspective, we point out how, um, just how unrealistic that is, um, because especially when you're interpreting the law, um, in order to have no effect on the law, you already have to have an idea of what the law surely already means. Um, In other words, you're uh, just hiding the interpretation that you're doing in order to claim that you're merely exposing the true underlying meaning of the law. In a political sense, so that, that was a kind of conceptual critique, a political critique is that any interpretation and implementation of law has policy outcomes. It has effects on the world. And so, again, there really is no way to be truly minimalist um, and not have an effect. And I guess in terms of what that builds up to, uh, to uh, a critique of interpretive methodologies is simply the idea that um, judging is inherently discretionary. There's a lot of discretion in in adjudication, no matter how you slice it. So even if you're a committed textualist, first of all, you're using your discretion to adopt the methodology of textualism. There's already discretion there. Um, Second of all, you're using your discretion to determine which precise part of the text should you be interpreting, uh, which sources should you be looking at. It's just as much a matter of discretion to say I'm not going to look at legislative history as it is a matter of discretion to say, I am going to look at legislative history. All of those are choices that judges make and um, we think they should own it. You know, that there's not a lot of productive benefit to be gained by denying the choices that you inherently have to make as a legal interpreter. Yeah, and I, I think that's such a good question because um, originalism and textualism in particular are packaged as um, ways of facilitating judicial restraint. And that's really exactly what we're calling into question and suggesting that in many ways the opposite is true. And um, the rhetoric, you see it all the time, right? We just interpret the law using these neutral methods. We don't make the law. And these other judges who follow different methods are illegitimate judicial activists. And that's really the uh, judicial populist rhetorical trope. And judicial populist judges reach all kinds of different decisions. Sometimes we like their decisions. Sometimes often we don't. Um, But the the one thing that's consistent is the, the rhetoric that they use about how they're just finding the law out there that already exists, that was previously enacted by the people, either when the Constitution was originally adopted um, or when the statute was was passed. And the judges really aren't doing anything other than uh, implementing the will of the people. And we think any realistic, uh, you know, conception of judging and adjudication and just the way the the government um, in a Republican democracy functions, that's just totally unrealistic. Um, And and in many, I I think that that the, the rhetoric of judicial populists to me is 
just as unrealistic as the rhetoric of political populists who claim to know the one true way that reflects the will, the will of the people. Um, and, and so a big part of the motivation for writing the paper was really to try to um, uh, uh, almost, uh, I don't know, call, uh, uh, critique or, um, I don't know, sort of explode the fiction that, that you just identified, that these, that these aren't methods of judicial restraint. They're ways of exercising power um, to the ends that the people who use this rhetoric choose. And it's a choice is, is the, really the point. And if I can jump in one more to, to, to further answer your question about um, why in particular um, we think that it not only that these methods not only fail to constrain, but in some sense liberate judges, it's exactly because it allows them to focus on the method and to limit their sources of information to the ones that they choose with minimal interpretive constraints. So um, there's not a lot in these decisions that can speak back to the judge and say, no, actually there's another perspective here. Maybe there's multiple readings that would be reasonable to give. Um, So in, in a sense, it actually liberates them to say, here's the text, I'm communing with the text, I'm expounding its true meaning. And in some sense, nobody's authorized to speak back to me and say that I'm wrong. You could probably tell we were, uh, we were as gung-ho when we were writing the paper as we are when we talk about it. <laughs> well, so I take it that Chief Justice Roberts's, you know, uh, balls and strikes metaphor seems almost like the apotheosis of the perspective on judicial populism you're describing. Uh, I wonder if you could give some other examples kind of like in the wild, as it were, of judges engaging in that kind of behavior to sort of illustrate why you think it's a problem or rather how it works and why you think how it works is a problem. So maybe I'll just jump in with another Chief Justice Roberts example. Um, The rhetoric in Shelby County, the Voting Rights Act decision, um, where he uh, discusses the way that Congress produced, you know, a 2000 page report on uh, on the, the, the situation of voting rights in the South, the continued attempts to disenfranchise. Uh, African-American and other minority voters, um, and acknowledges that the Voting Rights Act was reauthorized in almost unanimous, I mean, really uncannily unanimous um, votes in Congress, and then basically says, well, but we know better. We know what the real situation is. You know, there's more people registered to vote now than there ever have been, and so it's fine. We don't need these institutions to uh, do their research and figure out what's really going on and then make decisions that mediate among different interests in a way where nobody really wins all the time and nobody really loses all the time. We don't need that. We judges, we're good enough to make this decision ourselves in the face of this massive 
uh, information and, and unanimity in Congress. I think that's a really good example of the kind of anti-pluralist and anti-institutionalist aspects that we're talking about. Another example from the Voting Rights Act, um, which I, I really like, comes from the Chisholm versus Romer case, where um, the Voting Rights Act, um, you know, uh, prohibits um, discrimination that sort of interferes with the ability of voters to elect representatives of their choice. And um, the court uh, interpreted this language to um, include um, judicial elections. And Justice Scalia has a dissenting opinion where he says um, representatives do not include elected judges. And he reaches that conclusion with a citation to a dictionary definition. Um, he doesn't even uh, quote the language from the dictionary he's citing. And he suggests that that conclusion is just totally obvious and irrefutably correct. Um, and when you think about the, the word representatives in the context of government, I mean, that's an issue that, you know, the, the nature of representation in government is something that political theorists have been wondering about and arguing about and thinking about for hundreds of years. How can there be a simple answer and clear answer and unambiguously correct answer to what that word means? Um, and, and so that's sort of an example of how populists sort of simplify things and claim that there are um, unambiguously correct answers that are sort of incontestable. Um, the other example that is a little bit different but really fascinating is the Bostic decision um, from the Supreme Court this last summer, where, um, you know, the, the Supreme Court um, majority interprets the Civil Rights Act um, of 1964 to prohibit um, discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or transgender status. And um, you have three different opinions in the case, right? The majority opinion by Justice Gorsuch and then dissents um, by Alito and Kavanaugh all three of them claim to um, ascertain the single correct meaning or understanding of the statutory text. There are three different textualist opinions that all have three totally different understandings of what the text means. And they all claim to be unambiguously correct and sort of attack each other. Um, and I feel like that's just a really good illustration of both the, the nature of the rhetoric that's being used and also how unrealistic it is. What do you think an alternative would look like? If the kind of judicial populism you're describing is a problem, how should judges be thinking about judicial decision-making differently? And sort of what would a healthier and more democratic rhetoric look like? We, we end the paper with... Um, a discussion of what we call Republican judging or Democratic judging, you know, to contrast it with populist judging. And this isn't, obviously, the paper is really oriented around just identifying this phenomenon and making a case that it's really important and, and pernicious. Um, but we did want to, as you're suggesting, provide some off-ramps, some, some ways out of, of the problem um, and we, we really, again, orient that around those three key populist traits and think about uh, 
ways to um, overcome them, you know, and 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 jettison them from our adjudicata- adjudication approach. So one thing we talk about is to take a pluralist approach um, of methodological pluralism. So to assume that there are going to be different ways of approaching uh, any given case and that judges have to make decisions about what they're doing, that it's the judge's responsibility or really any legal theorist or legal writer's responsibility to justify what they're doing in the context of the particular case that they're doing it in. And you can't rely on method as kind of a get out of jail free card to ensure the correctness of your interpretation. Um, We also suggest uh, much more explicit and extensive respect for the institutions that mediate pluralistic views in a democracy. So really taking cues from Congress Um, as well as from administrative agencies um, when thinking about what legal language should mean. Yeah. And I mean, an example is, um, and this is not something we talk about in the paper, but if you think about um, the debate that's going on right now about whether to eliminate Chevron deference, um, that's something that the uh, judicial populace or judges who engage in this rhetoric the most often are really sort of in favor of doing. And um, that would really sort of centralize authority in the judiciary, right, and allow the judges to provide a single correct answer regarding what the law means. Whereas um, the existing uh, Chevron framework is much more uh, along the lines or in line with. Um, the approach to democratic judging that we suggest, because it's pluralist in the sense that there can be um, multiple different understandings um, of a legal text or a regulatory statute that might all be uh, reasonable. Um, And it respects institutions because it um, really forces the court to um, you know, look at or uh, be receptive to the views of administrative agencies. Um, And, you know, that doesn't mean that agencies get to do whatever they want. Um, The courts would, you know, assess the reasonableness of the agency's decision and whether the agency provided a reason justification for what it was doing. Um, But it's much more respectful of other uh, institutions in democracy um, that sort of mediate different views uh, uh, among different people. Um, And I think the other key part of the democratic judging that we're advocating for, and and to me, in many ways, the most important part of it is the need to justify one's decisions on the merits, right? Because um, originalists and textualists and others who um, sort of engage in this more populist um, uh, rhetoric Um, tend to portray their decisions as something that's preordained, right? And and something that they themselves don't have any choice in, right? Like the the original public meaning of the Constitution is X. So that's what we need to do, um, irrespective of the consequences of that. And if judging really is as discretionary as Anya and I have described it, judges always have choices regarding what to do. And um, they should um, 
you know, exercise that discretion in ways that promote Republican democracy rather than undermine it. So that means considering and responding in a reasoned fashion to the arguments of the litigants, um, respecting the views of other institutions, and really most importantly, um, uh, justifying the decision that the judge makes um, on the merits um, in that particular case based on all the relevant information. Um, rather than just acting like um, the judge is um, implementing a decision that was already made by someone else, um, with the someone else really in this context being the people. So one question I had while reading the paper was whether what you're suggesting is essentially a version of legal realism or whether it's something more or perhaps different from that. So my, my initial reaction to that is to think, first, we are definitely legal realists. <laughs> I think there's little question about that. We're pretty anti-positivistic, I think, in thinking about law. Um, others have suggested, and I think this is accurate, that we our views are also very closely aligned with legal process theory. Um, I tend to think that my own work is uh, in the camp of what I would consider sort of like the new legal process theory, which is, um, you know, sort of very much in line with the traditional um, ideas um, of Hart and Sachs, but sort of updated to uh, uh, grapple with the lessons that we've learned from public choice theory and the ideas of these competing interpretive methodologies that we've been talking about today. Um, but absolutely, I think um, taking a realistic view of law, um, wanting the legal system to be responsive um, and, um, you know, sort of respecting the competences of um, various institutions and, um, you know, allowing uh, democracy to play itself out differently in different places with different groups of people. And um, uh, I mean, uh, this really allowing democracy to flourish in a way um, that the, that's very much in line with sort of our philosophy and thinking about these issues. Yeah, I guess one way I would put it is that um, I, I think we should be realistic about the um, the competencies, the potentials and the limitations of our institutions of governance and the people who people them. Um, but we don't need to be cynical about them. Um, and I think a key conception that really drives me in this paper is the conviction that political legitimacy and legal legitimacy um, democratic legitimacy in general is not really something that inheres in an institution or in a social position. It's something that legal and political players have to constantly create in the social setting that they're in. And so we're really interested in modes of legitimation here um, to recognize them and and perhaps to steer them in what we see as more productive directions. So Glenn, Anya, in closing, um, I, I was wondering if you had any thoughts on 
the sort of perspective that you take on judicial populism and whether it is relevant to how we do legal scholarship, right? I mean, like, are to what extent are we as academics engaging with this as a problem? Should we be doing something differently? And are we vulnerable to the kinds of problems that you identify in relation to the judiciary? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and I think that we are vulnerable to, um, you know, part, part of the thesis of the paper is that the same sort of populism that we've been seeing in the political arena has insinuated itself into legal theory. And, um, you know, we use originalism and textualism, and I suppose unitary executive theory as the three primary examples of that. And I, I think part of the reason for us taking on this project was a sense, you know, as people who've been doing this work for a little while, that these theories and ideas are becoming orthodoxy. And they're becoming really prevalent. And if you, you know, read the law reviews, so much of it um, sort of accepts uncritically that originalism and, and textualism are not only legitimate methods of interpretation, but maybe the most legitimate or the only legitimate methods. And um, we see a real danger in that sort of shift in um, legal scholarship and legal orthodoxy. And a big uh, part of the, the goal in writing this paper is to push back against that and to recognize that not only is that incorrect, but it's actually dangerous from a democratic standpoint. Yeah, I guess one way of putting it is just that as legal scholars, we should stay aware that the legal systems and, and legal rules that we're writing about exist in a broader context. And we We'd like that context to remain the Republican Democratic context. Um, and we shouldn't uh, be overly uh, enamored with a theory just because it's kind of simple and pretty and seems easy to implement when, in fact, it undermines the Republican Democratic context that it's a part of. Well, Anya, Glenn, thanks so much for coming on the show to talk about your excellent new paper, and uh, I recommend it to readers. We've only scratched the surface, and there's a lot more in there. Thank thanks you so, so much, much for having us. This was great. story of the Pied Piper of Hamlin. Once upon a time in a far-off land on the bank of a broad blue river, there stood a little town, and the name of this town was Hamlin. The story I'm going to tell you happened many, many years ago, when your great-great-grandfather was a little boy, and it concerns a person who was known as the Pied Piper. Now, since this story happened in the town of Hamlin, perhaps it would be just as well if I told you a little about this place. In those days, Hamlin was a very peaceful little town. Or at least I thought it was peaceful. 
Now, what do you suppose is going on here? My, looks like something exciting. Wonder who that tall, skinny gent is. He seems to be the head man around here. Maybe I can find out something from him. All right now, that's enough. Let's all go up to the town hall right now and see that our mayor gives us some action. Oh, uh, pardon me, sir, but what seems to be the trouble? Well, you must be a stranger here. Oh, I suppose you might call it that. Here's a stranger, friends. He doesn't know what's been going on here. Yes, friend, rats. Thousands of them. Millions of them. They fight the dogs and kill the cats. And eat the cheese out of the vat. Split open the kegs of solid sprat. Make nests inside our Sunday hats. And, and even spoil our little chat by drowning our speaking with shrieking and squeaking in 50 different shops and flats. And there you are. And we've had enough of it. We're on our way to the town hall right now. Hmm, this sounds interesting. Let's go along and see what happens. Please, please. A widow quiet. After all, I am still your mayor, don't forget. Yes, and don't forget us. We're still your city council, too. Don't worry, we won't forget. Quiet, please. A fine mayor and council indeed. To think we buy gowns lined with ermine for imbeciles who can't determine a way to rid us of our vermin. your old and obese to find in the furry civic robies. Let's count the pop. Get a little over the obies and robies. Ain't it wonderful the way he goes on there? <laughs> yes? What's obese? Hush, I said. Rouse up, sirs. Give your brains a racking to find the remedy we're lacking or sure as fate we'll send you packing. Well, I promise to do my very best. Yes. And we promise, I mean, promise too. Ah, oh, this I gotta see. 